All right, okay. Hands up anybody that likes a good story. Wonderful. Good, well, I do too. We've been looking at the Bible over recent weeks, and one way that we can view the Bible is as a story. It's a story that starts most properly in the beginning. And with God creating the heavens and the earth, and we read that God filled the earth with all sorts of wonderful things, including a creature that had the amazing capacity to live in relationship with its maker. Man was put on the earth to walk with God and to enjoy him forever. But unfortunately, this wasn't a story where they lived happily ever after. See, this story was just beginning. And it's a story that we filled with countless twists and turns and dramatic and unexpected events. One, we, one minute we read of God's harmonious walk with man in the garden. And the next we see of man's rebellion against God. Then we see God drive man out of the garden. And immediately we see God start to unfold a plan to bring um, him back to himself. So we watch as God starts to prepare a people. And we read of prophets and kings and the making of a nation. We see that nation turn from God and then return. We see good kings and bad kings. We see the nation split into two, then taken into captivity, and then return to their homeland. And then it all goes quiet, and nothing seems to happen. And just when we're thinking that perhaps that's the end of the story... Then suddenly, God himself comes to earth as a man, to live as a man among men. And we realize that the whole of the story up till this point has been a preparation for this dramatic intervention. God, in the person of Jesus Nazareth, lives and does good in the land of Palestine. He teaches the people that he has come to make a way back for God before being crucified, buried, and then raised to life again. So Jesus goes back to be with the Father in heaven, and his disciples take the good news to the whole earth. We see God continue his plan to make a people for himself as the church takes root and starts to grow. Now this story ends sometime in the future, when Jesus will return and take his people to be with himself forever in a new heaven and a new earth. And that'll just be the beginning of the next chapter in this epic story. But you know, here's the thing with stories. They can be fact or fiction. True stories or just the product of somebody's imagination. And it's really important that we know which is which. Now, fiction is okay. I've read and watched a lot of fiction over my life. Sometimes it's tense, sometimes uplifting. It can be exciting, intriguing, stirring. If it's well-written or well-produced, we can get really caught up in it. But we have to remember... It's just a story. Now, I'm sure you've had this experience. You've listened to people discussing television soaps, and they get so emotionally involved in the characters and what's going on, you feel like shaking them and saying, come on, it's just a story. But you know, the truth is, there are books on my bookshelf which I haven't finished because I anticipated that something bad was going to happen in that story. And so I didn't want those things to happen, so I didn't read it. Now, that's crazy, isn't it? But you know, a lot of people... Look at the Bible like that. They might admit that it's an intriguing story with some uplifting parts, some good moral guidance, but at the end of the day, it's just a story. And as Christians, we say, no, this isn't just a story. It's a true story. The history contained in the Bible is real history. The teaching contained in the Bible is real truth. 
God really is there. And we really can be reconciled to him. The prophecy contained in the Bible really will happen. Jesus really will come again. You know, the stories of Jesus' death and resurrection, these aren't fictional accounts designed to point us to some kind of greater spiritual reality. They actually happened. Now, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, said this, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. If in Christ, in this life only, we have hope, then we are of all people most to be pitied. If Jesus wasn't actually raised from the dead after being crucified, if his flesh and blood body didn't really come up out of the tomb on Easter Sunday morning, then we're wasting our time being here this morning. Our faith is futile. And because we're called to live sacrificial lives on the basis that our faith is real, that God has an amazing future planned for us, then Paul is quite right. We are, of all people, most to be pitied. We are throwing our lives away for nothing. But of course, if Jesus was raised, then that changes everything. Because it validates all that he said and taught during his life. It proves that God accepted his sacrifice. We really can have life with God. We really can be raised to life again and live eternally with him. So it really matters. Fact or fiction, everything hangs on the answer. How we view the Bible is of paramount importance. Did the events described in it really happen? Are the teachings contained in it really the words of Jesus and his disciples? Did Jesus really die and rise again? So I want to consider these questions this morning, and I'm going to look at the Bible, and in particular the Gospels and the New Testament. I'm going to look at them as a book. Now, clearly we, we, we believe that the Bible is more than just a book. It's, a, it's God's revelation to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But it's not less than a book either. And... At the level of literature, it makes various claims about itself. It claims to be a record of history. It claims to be a record of Jesus' teaching. It claims to tell us about real people and real events. And Luke, at the beginning of his account of Jesus' life and ministry, he writes this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This is what the Bible claims about itself. These things were written so that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught that Jesus stands right at the center of the Christian faith. And the Gospels and the New Testament more generally were always intended to be a reliable record so that we too can have certainty regarding the things that he said, the things that he claimed about himself and the consequences of his death and resurrection. But you know, you'll all be aware of this, but we live in times when the reliability, the integrity and the authenticity of the biblical accounts are increasingly questioned. And it's good for us from time to time to face these objections and to be reassured for our own benefit and for the benefit of those that might ask us and that we really can rely on what is written in our Bibles. Okay, so let's start with the big picture. And uh, uh, Kyla, if you can give me the first slide, thank you. So here you can see uh, that I've set out the overall process by which the 
words and the actions of Jesus and the writings of the apostles are being recorded and transmitted through to the Bibles that we have today. So on the left-hand side, you'll see what I've labelled as stage one, the life of Jesus. And that takes us from about 0 to 33 AD. Here, Jesus lives, teaches, performs miracles, and finally dies and is raised to life. And all these events and teachings are passed on both orally, that is from um, mouth, no, person to person by word of mouth, but also in written records. And that process continues for a period of about 20 to 50 years, and that's period one on the slide, until all the books of the New Testament are written. So then in stage two, um, the Gospels describing the life and work of Jesus are written down, as well as the letters of Paul and the other apostles. And all these books are written between about AD 50 and AD 95. So most of them are written between 50 and 70 AD, between 20 and 50 years after Jesus died. Then we have a period in which these original writings were distributed and copied, and copies were made of the copies. And all of these um, originals, the, 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 first, you know, the first lot, they've, and the original copies, they've all long since vanished. What we have are the copies that have survived. And we've got copies that are dated between about AD 120 and AD 340. So from the early 2nd century, we just have some very small fragments. Um, but by the uh, end of the next couple of centuries, we have whole books and collections of books, until by 340, we have the entire New Testament. So here we are at stage three on there, and, we, and, um, and then we have this big gap, what I've labelled period three, through to the present day, when we have our modern translations in stage four. So that's the overall process, then, of how we get our New Testaments today. But there are various questions and objections raised at each stage in that process. So starting from modern times, I'm going to work backwards and just address some of those questions and objections. But I want you to keep that big picture in mind as we go so you don't get lost in the details. Okay, so if we can have the next slide. So here we are in 21st century Britain. And one objection you'll hear is that there are so many translations. How can we rely on them if they all say different things? Well, it is certainly true there are lots of translations, but to say they all say different things is a bit misleading. But how do we account for the fact they say different things at all? Well, there are various reasons, but one of the main ones is that languages don't just neatly, neatly map onto each other. You can't just go through word by word and translate from one language to another, because it's not just the vocabulary that's different. The grammar is different too. The expressions we use are different too. The language is complicated, and if you try to learn a language, you'll know that. And if you have succeeded, you have my heartfelt admiration. <laughs> Let me just give you one example in English. If I say the dog bit the man, we know who was bitten and who was responsible for doing the biting by the word order. But in some languages, and this includes Greek, the, the language the Bible was written in, or the New Testament was written in, you get to know who was doing the biting and who was bitten by the endings on the word. So the word order is of secondary importance. So a direct word-for-word -word translation could have the, the, the man biting the dog. So the upshot of all of that is that translating from one language to another requires some judgment if the meaning is going to be conveyed accurately. And so there are two basic approaches that are taken. One is to translate as near as possible, to, so the translation is as near as you can get to being a word-for-word -word, um, uh, translation. Um, but that sort of translation isn't very easy to read, and in some cases might not actually convey accurately the meaning of what the author was trying to say. So the other approach is to take a short section and then rewrite it in the way that you imagine the writer would have written had he been writing in English. So clearly that involves some judgment and interpretation. So the result is 
in some sense, it's less accurate, strictly speaking, but it's much more readable. And different translators have different views on how much to sacrifice the word-for-word literacy of it uh, uh, for, for a more readable um, uh, translation. So you get quite a spectrum. And this, it's a very valid difference in approach. And that goes quite a long way to, approach, uh, to, to explain the different translations that we have. It's not the only reason, but it's a, it's a major one. And the important thing I want you to note here is that if you really want to know exactly what the Greek said, you can learn Greek and read it for yourself. Or take it to a Greek scholar and get him to read it for you. The point is that there's no secret that's being concealed here, no meaning that's been lost. We can get back to that if we really want to. Just one practical note on translations, if I may. As I say, there are lots of translations out there. I would advise you to stick with one for most of your reading. Sometimes it's refreshing to read in different languages, uh, different um, um, translations, maybe languages as well. But it's good to memorize scripture, and it's much easier to do that if you are reading in the same version all the time. So that's just a practical point. So that's all I want to say on this stage of the process. We can be confident that we can get back to the first um, few centuries. So if we go to the next slide, a few words about the manuscripts. Well, we don't have any of the original writings. What we have are copies of copies. And the dates of these copies varies, as I said, from about AD um, 120 through to about AD uh, 340. And I put AD 340 as the latter cut-off date because by that time we have um, whole New Testaments preserved for us. And one of those is called the Codex Sinaiticus. And you can see that in the next slide. The great thing is about this... um, Yeah, that's one... Thank you. Um, The great thing about this is you can see the real thing for free just up the road in the British Library. Uh, And you get right up close to it. In the same place, you can see letters from Queen Elizabeth I and Newton and Darwin and all these sorts of people. And I don't know about you, but there's something about seeing things in the flesh which really brings history alive. And I know for myself, as I stood there and I looked at this, the 1,700 or so years between us and then just sort of shrunk down to nothing as I saw it. And I do recommend you go and see it. We're so privileged to have such easy access to such amazing things. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, we have a fragment of papyrus from verse from John 18, and that's on the next slide. Yeah, there we go. Thank you, Kyla. This was written about AD 120, so this is only 90 years after the events that it was describing, and possibly as little as 25 years after the original document was written. And this fragment is also here in this country, this time in the John Rylands University Library in Manchester. And again, you can go and see it. So we have these records from the 2nd and 3rd centuries, which is a long time ago, and in historical terms, really close to the events they're describing. But it still doesn't get us right back to the originals. There's no museum in the world where you can go and see a signed letter of Paul. There's no university owns a letter in Luke's own handwriting. All we have are the copies of copies. And that can be seen as a problem. How can we really know what was in the originals? That is, how can we get back to stage two um, on the next slide? And what makes the situation worse is that New Testament documents were copied by all and sundry. They weren't trained people. And you can imagine the sort of scenario. A church might receive a letter from Paul, and they want their sister churches to see this new teaching themselves. So a few of them will quickly write it down and send it on. And 
those recipient churches again will make copies and send them on. And these copies are translations of different languages, from Greek to Syrian, Egyptian, Latin, and so on. So we get copies of copies rapidly spreading from region to region and being translated from language to language. And you can understand why some people say, well, the mistakes must have been introduced in that whole process. And the fact is that they were. In fact, depending on how you count them, there are thousands of different readings. But does this mean we can't get back to the original text? Well, fortunately, no. There are techniques that allow scholars to work backwards from copies to what was likely to have been in the originals. Now, how they do that, the details of how they do that, you probably don't want to know. But I want you to note two things about these, these techniques which are important. First, they are used by scholars to reconstruct all ancient texts, not just the Bible. Um, and second, since these techniques basically depend on comparing one document with another document, the more documents you have to work with, the more confident you can be of your results. And here, scholars attempting to reconstruct the, the, the wording of the New Testament documents are an incredibly strong position. See, our modern translations are based on over 5,000 Greek manuscripts, and there are many more in other languages. And I think you'll be stunned when you compare that with the... Um, uh, on the next slide, hopefully with other works of, um, of ancient uh, classical literature. So you see, look at the top of that list um, on the, on the left-hand side. You'll see there are just seven surviving copies of Plato and Pliny. At the bottom, there are nearly 650 of Homer. But compare that to the number of manuscripts we have for the New Testament, which is nearly 6,000. And that's just the Greek ones. There are more, as I say, in other languages. And you can see that information on the right-hand side. There's a massive spike on that graph. Now, no one seriously questions the text of these other ancient works. How much more confident can we be in the reconstruction of the New Testament? Well, we have an overwhelmingly um, greater number of manuscripts to work with. But there's more than that. You see, it's not just the numbers that are important. What's also as important is the time interval between the original documents being written and the earliest surviving copies that we have. So, for example, if there was a document written in um, 500 BC and the earliest copy we have is AD 200, there's a 700-year gap. And over that time, they've been copied and copied and copied. And there, obviously, along the way, there's the possibility of errors being introduced. So clearly, the smaller that time interval is, the more more confident we can be uh, of determining the original. And again, here, the New Testament is in a league of its own. So if we look at the next slide, please, Kyla. You see um, here that some of the oldest... Um, maybe the next one. That looks about right to me. Good. Um, compare the, 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 the biblical text with other ancient works. And you see on the, on the left-hand side there, there are various, various classical works again. And the gap the, 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 between the, the documents being written and the copies that we have varies from about 500 years through to 1,400 years. But for the New Testament, the gap is about 500 to 200 years. And some of the documents are as little as 25 years. And again, you can see that on a graph on the right-hand side. We can see how significant these facts are. The time span between the time when the originals were written and the time of the, we have the copies, the copies that we still have, is so small, there was no time for any significant variation to distort the text. So if we refer to, again to the overall picture, if we have the next slide, please. You can see we can get back to stage two with confidence. 
the Bible you hold in your hand is substantially the same as what was originally written right back there. So that is really good progress. And in fact, for a great chunk of the New Testament, that's as far as we need to go, because for all the letters of the Paul, James, John, and so on, to all intents and purposes, we know what they wrote. It's only the Gospels that present an extra layer of complication or potential difficulty. Before we get to that, I just want to backtrack one step. Because um, I said earlier that, um, that after Paul, whoever wrote a letter, it was copied and copied. And I said that there were many errors that were introduced, and that might bother you. So let me just sort of say a bit about that. Over 80% of those differences are at the level of spelling differences. So like spelling color, C-O-L-O-R, instead of correctly with a U. So 8 out of 10 of those variations have no impact on the meaning at all. And of the, of the remainder, most of them can be sorted very easily. Maybe a word was missed out of one document, or maybe um, all the original documents say one thing and one very late document says something a little bit different. It's very easy to tell which is which. So nearly everything can be sorted easily. We end up with less than 1% of the differences that we can't be sure about. But again, it's important for you to know there's no cover-up about this. It's no secret. All the uncertainties are known. And if you have a study Bible, you'll find them listed in your Bible. So if you were to look at Romans 5, verse 1, for example, you might find um, your, your, your Bible say that some documents say, we have peace, others say, let us have peace. It's only one letter difference in the Greek, so you can see how the um, confusion can have arisen. But they mean different things. But no great um, theology is based on that, on that uh, phrase. At the end of Mark is one of the biggest differences. Some um, in the last chapter of Mark will finish at verse 8 and miss out the last 12 verses. Some will include the last 12 verses. But again, you, your Bible will spell that out for you, and you'll look at that and you see, well, there's no, no theological issues whether it's there or not. So it's not something you need to worry about. It's there, and there's no secret about it. Okay, so we're back to stage two. We, we, we can be confident of what was written at that stage, but we still have um, that gap. Um, possibly the next slide, Kyla? There we go, thank you. Um, between the time that Jesus was alive and the time that the books were written. And given that it's Jesus that stands right at the middle of our story, we really want to be able to rely on what, the records of what Jesus said and what he did. So I'm now focusing particularly on the Gospels, which of course claim to be records of Jesus' life and teaching. Now if Jesus was just a great moral teacher or a great leader, then nobody would have a problem with the accounts that are written. But of course the fact is that the Gospels are jam-packed with um, miracles, with Jesus' claim to be God, uh, with accounts of his death and his resurrection. And it's all this supernatural sort of stuff that, that leads people to one of two conclusions. Either it's just outright fabrication or it's a result of stories that have evolved over time and what is written is the end result of those evolved stories. So we can't rely on what is written, we're told. So I want to consider each of those possibilities, the second one first. And that is that the stories about Jesus evolved over time with the supernatural elements being added along the way. Now there's one scholar who particularly pushes this view. His name is Bart Ehrman. And he says that it's like Chinese whispers. The stories about Jesus circulated for many years, changing all the time. And at first sight, you could say, well, that's a plausible possibility. But let's just think about that for a moment. So you've all played the game Chinese Whispers. What's the point of it? Anyone? It, 
It's supposed to be funny, isn't it? It's supposed to end up, the person at the end of the line is supposed to give some humorous distortion of the original. And the whole process is set up to encourage that outcome. So there's just one line of communication. And each person speaks in whispers. And you're not allowed to repeat yourself. But there's no parallel between that process and the process by which the stories of the New Testament of the, past, of the Gospels were passed on till the time they were written down. See, what we've got to remember is this was largely an oral culture. And they were practiced in passing things on accurately. So if we were to compare it with Chinese whispers, for one thing, we'd have to have multiple lines of communication rather than just one. But each person would have to speak clearly. The person receiving the message would have to repeat it back to the original person to make sure they got it right. Every third person or so might go back a couple of stages and check with that person, did they get it right? And it wouldn't make for a very exciting game, but you're going to end up with something which is um, correct. And, and that's what happened. The, 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 the constant monitoring of the community ensured that the integrity of the message was preserved. So there's no parallel there with Chinese whispers. But there's another flaw in his reasoning as well. And that's his assumption that the people writing the Gospels were at the end of this chain. Um, their only knowledge about Jesus and the events that they were describing was as a, as a result of this message that had been passed down from person to person. That they had no direct access to the um, events or the pe- to people themselves. But that's not what the Gospels themselves say. So Luke explicitly says that there were eyewitnesses available to speak to talk to. John, who was an eyewitness, said that he wrote his gospel so that others could believe. Mark was believed to have written under the direction of Peter, who of course was an eyewitness. And there's no reason to believe they weren't speaking the truth. When you look at the small time difference between the times when the events happened and the gospels were written, most scholars will agree that Matthew, Mark and Luke were written in the mid-60s. So that's only 30 to 40 years after the events they described. So that's not a long time, well within the lifetimes of the eyewitnesses. And there are clues within the gospels as well which point to eyewitness testimony. Now, have you ever wondered why, out of all the blind people that Jesus healed, we still know the the story about Bartimaeus? Have you wondered about, out of all the sinners whose lives were transformed, we still know Zacchaeus' story? Imagine that we're a church in the mid-60s, and Diane has decided she's going to write an account of Jesus' life. Now, imagine that Pradeep here was born blind, and in his 30s, he met Jesus and was healed. Don't you think that Diane would know about it? And if she was going to write an account about Jesus' life and his miracles, don't you think that she might include Pradeep's story? And don't you think it would be easy for her to get her facts straight? And if she embellished a bit, don't you think there'd be plenty of people that would say, no, that's not how it happened, this is how it happened? Somebody would put her right. The idea that the Gospels just evolved over time doesn't work. So what about the idea that the Gospel accounts were just plain made up? Now, this might seem like the easiest solution. After all, if you're making up a story and you want miracles to happen, you just write it down. Job done. You don't have to worry about eyewitnesses or laws of nature or anything like that. You just write what you like. But actually, it's not quite as simple as that, and I'll tell you why. But just before I do, there's just, just a quick one-liner that just, you might find helpful if somebody's sort of asking you about this. So there's good historical evidence to support the, the fact that nearly all of the apostles were martyred. And they were martyred because of the things they said they believed. Now think about it. It's possible that somebody might be prepared to die for something that they sincerely believed was true. But who is going to die for something they know for a fact is made up because they made it up? 
It's just implausible. But if we go back to our story, how easy is it to make up a story that's supposed to be true and based on fact in a real historical setting? Well, it's not that easy. Now, some of you remember the Da Vinci Code a few years ago uh, by Dan Brown. And Dan Brown pretended that this book was all based on, um, on, on truth, on fact. But he made a number of factual errors just in describing the geography of Paris and London. And these are easy facts to check. The gospel writers have been shown to be accurate on a whole number of details that they would have had no way of checking had they been making up stories. And we're just going to look at one of those now. So a quick bit of background before I do. It's generally agreed that apart from Matthew, none of the gospels were written in Palestine. The others were probably written from places as far away as Turkey and, um, and Italy. And that is a fact, uh, a fact that some say is proof of their unreliability. But actually, the reverse is true. The fact that they got so many details right, despite the fact they were writing from so long away, is strong evidence they were writing fact, not fiction. And I'm going to illustrate that with one particular example. And I think it's a very interesting one, partly because it's relatively recent research and partly because it's something we can all relate to. So we're going to focus on people's names, in particular on the relative popularity of names. Now, you know that each year we can get a ranking um, of the most popular boys' and girls' names. So let's do a quick test, and no checking on Google. There are not many of you here, I can see. So what are the top four girls' names in the UK at the moment? Just quickly call them out. Olivia, sorry? Catherine, Catherine, no. Charlotte, no. Uh, Anne, no. Amelia, no. One of you got it. We've got Olivia right, okay? One um, out, of, out of the top five. That's not very, not very good. It's not so easy, is it? If you wanted to write a long story with lots of characters, and you wanted to pretend that story was real, your choice of names would have given the name away, because somebody could have looked on Google at the ranking of names and seen, well, the kind of names they were using in their story doesn't match the kind of names that are actually out there at the moment. So people would wonder, they'd have grounds to, reason, to wonder whether you were really writing a factual story about real people. Now, if you were being very careful in your fabrication of a story, you could look up the rankings of names, and you could use the names that were currently being used. But, of course, that option wasn't available to the Gospel writers. There were no lists showing the rankings of names in the early first century Palestine. But there is now. Thanks to a lady called Talilan. She's a Jewish uh, uh, scholar. And in 2002, for reasons best known to herself, she decided to compile a name, a list of all the names that were being used at the beginning of the first century in Palestine. So she looked at manuscripts, inscriptions, ossuaries, anything that had a name written on it. And she compiled a list of 3,000 names that were being used. And she ranked those then in order of popularity. So now we have a great set of data showing all sorts of details about names in Palestine at the time of Christ. An amazing resource for a Christian scholar to play with. And Richard Borkham duly rose to the challenge. And he compiled his own list of names from the New Testament. Again, showing the names used and their relative popularity. And the first thing he did was to show those two lists side by side. So if we look at the next slide, wonderful. Um, we can see the top five male names according to this lady Elan's research. So as you see on the, on the slide here, they were Simon, Joseph, Lazarus, Judas, and John. And if we look then at the top five male names in the New Testament, we look at the next slide. 
we see number one was Simon. Number two is Joseph. Number three is Judas. Number four, John. And number five is James. So four out of the five names are the same and in the same order. According to her research, according to um, um, Borkham's research, then 16, oh no, according to her research, 16% of the men in the population at, live, at large were called either Simon or Joseph. In the New Testament, that figure is 18%. So almost exactly the same, and, and Richard Borkham has compiled a list of different statistics that show the close correlation between the ways that the names were used in the New Testament and the way they were actually used in the population. So Bart Ehrman, who we've already met, he made this objection about the Gospels. He said, where then did these anonymous Greek-speaking authors, living probably outside of Palestine some 35 to 65 years after the events they narrate, get their information? Where indeed? You didn't manage to get the ranking right for girls' names here in the UK at the moment. Imagine that instead of asking for girls' names in 2017 here in the UK, I'd asked you for girls' names in France 30 years ago. You wouldn't have had a hope. The gospel writers were writing from further away in a time when there was much less access to information. So how did the New Testament writers get it so right? How could they have known what names to use and with what frequency if they were making it up? They didn't have access to Ilan's research. That wasn't published till 2,000 years later. Surely the obvious answer is they got it right because they were recording the real names of real people. Now we can look at this in a different way. If I were, say, to ask Eric to put his hand up, I'm going to get, probably this morning, two pairs of hands, or two hands. So, uh, but if I asked everyone called Felix to put their hands up, I'm just going to get the one. Because in any geographical location, at any particular time, some names are used more frequently than others. So if I wanted a particular Eric to put his hand up, I would say Eric, who leads uh, Healing on the Streets, or Eric, who's our treasurer. Um, I'd have to differentiate the names. And that was the exact same situation in Palestine at the time of Christ. And it was more of an issue then, because they didn't have surnames either. So according to Ilan's research, people were differentiated on basis of things like um, their profession, where they came from, or some other unique feature. And again, we see this in the New Testament. So for Simon, for example, we have Simon of Cyrene, Simon the Tanner, Simon the Leper, Simon the Zealot. And once again, we see how biblical usage corresponded to historical evidence. But of course, if you have an unusual name, you don't need to do that. And I've never had a problem with being confused with anyone else. If someone calls out, Adrian, I know they're talking to me. And again, the same applied in Palestine at the time of Christ. If you were referring to Simon, you had to differentiate. Whereas if you were referring to Thomas, whose name didn't even make it into the top 100 in the rankings, you didn't need to. And with that in mind, let's look at the list of disciples as they're given in Matthew 10. So we read that the names of the apostles are these. Simon, who is, of course, ranked at number one. We're told Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, who is ranked at number 11, we're told is the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip, who is ranked at 61, has no distinguisher. And Bartholomew, who is ranked at 50, also needs no distinguisher. Um, where are we up to? Matthew. Matthew, number nine, is the tax collector. James, at 11, is the son of Alphaeus. Thaddeus, at 39, no distinguisher. Simon, as we know, is number one, is the zealot. And Judas, is number four, is Iscariot, who betrayed him. You see how precisely those names follow that pattern. 
So again, we ask, how would someone writing from hundreds of miles away know when they needed to differentiate the names? Once again, we must surely conclude they got it right because they were writing about real people, and this was the way they were actually addressed. Now, you've heard of people say of stories that left them dumbfounded, you literally couldn't make it up. Well, I want to put it to you that that's exactly what we have to say about the Gospels. You literally couldn't have made it up. Okay, we're out of time and I need to wrap, but I just want again to look at the overall picture on the next slide. Thank you. I hope that I've been able to go some way this morning just to closing that gap for you between us here in 2017 and the events of Jesus' life right back in the first few decades of the first century. We have every reason to believe that our Bibles accurately reflect the gospel, uh, accurately reflect um, what was said and what was done at that time. The Bible is in part a story, and it's a story that is true. And that's important because how we respond to Jesus and his teaching and his offer of salvation depends on whether we believe it or not. It's important because whether we like it or not, we are part of that story. It's important because this story is going to have an ending. You know, just as the Bible records Jesus' life on earth um, in a real historical period, so it tells us what is going to happen at the end of this chapter. And those events in the future will be just as real as those that are recorded in the Bible. The angels said to the, to the disciples as they, as they watched Jesus um, after he ascended, they said to him, said to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go up into heaven. Jesus will come again. And for those that are ready, this is a story that will have a very good ending.